The Canadian Medical Association Journal published a report proving, without a doubt, that despite the rhetoric espoused by our public health establishment, they don't care at all about saving or preserving life. No, this death cult is attempting to make the case that murdering old people would save them money. And we interview Dr. Scott Masson, professor, author, and cultural analyst, and together we try to navigate how Christians need to think about culture and education. You're going to want to see this informative discussion. I'm about to go to a cottage with my family, so please, pretty please, try not to burn down the country while I'm away. It's September the 8th. I'm Andrew DiBartolo. That's Matt Halleck, and this is the Liberty Dispatch. Welcome to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture war. Thank you once again for joining us here on the Dispatch. We're so thankful to have you, our viewers and our listening audience. No matter where you're getting our content, whether it's on a Rumble uh, page, uh, potentially on our YouTube page, or also just via podcast on the various podcast catchers. We ask that you would interact with our com uh, content by commenting, liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. It always helps us get our content out to more people. Also, we are part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, flfnetwork.com. You can also check us out on the swanky Fight, Laugh, Feast Network app as well, and you can get our content on demand right on that app on your phone as well. So be sure to go over to the Google Play Store or your Apple App Store and download that app. Also, be sure to go over to website, libertycoalitioncanada.com, Please, if you would, check out all that we have going on there. If you would, consider volunteering, getting involved in our various initiatives. If you have issues that you need legal support for, feel free. Reach out to us. We do that as well. Also, please donate to us here at the Liberty Co Coalition so we can continue to grow and develop and push back against the Canadian Pravda Corporation and their minions and the various uh, hundreds of other media corporations that have taken government money uh, in Canada because we're trying to push back against that mainstream narrative that is happening in our nation. So be sure to donate at the top of the page or, as always, you can scan the QR code beneath and uh that'll take you straight to the page there also finally info at libertycoalitioncanada.com that's how you're going to get in a hold of us with any comments questions or concerns i want to take a minute to tell you guys about our friends that you're well aware of them at rocklink investment partners you guys are getting out of mainstream media. That's why you watch our show, and that's why you are watching other like-minded shows. Mm -hmm. And so why not take the next step and get out of mainstream investment management? Whether it's planning for retirement or just looking for ways to protect your wealth from overreaching government, Rocklink can most definitely help you guys out. They're not a big bank, and they're not owned by the Davos crowd. They're a private company filled with freedom-loving Canadians offering independent investment advice. Give them a call today at 905-631-5462 or send them an email, info at rocklink.com. 
That's info at rocklink.com. Well, Mr. Matt, it appears that the demons that run our health bureaucracies have finally said the quiet part out loud. They finally said what they've been murmuring internally, and it's now coming and out what, externally. And what crazy tin hat conspiracy theorists like us have been saying since medical assistance and dying assisted suicide was first promoted in our nation, right? We can't lose sight of that. Is there was some crackpots like us that were saying this is the type of calculation that is going to be inevitable if we go down this road. Anyways, continue. So it's Andrew. not just yeah, it's not just <laughs> them saying the quiet part out loud, but their minions, mm-hmm. right? Their propaganda minions at the CPC, and you you reference this up front, <laughs> and I'm going to start calling it this. They're no longer known as the CBC. They're not the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They're the Canadian Pravda Corporation. So the CPC, the propaganda minions of the demons that run our health bureaucracies. Uh, And both of them, both the demons and the minions, I'm sure were jumping up and down gleefully as this story was broke. And the story is that the Canadian Medical Association Journal did the math and killing old people before they die naturally could save a whole lot of money in Canada. Now, the fact that they would have this discussion in and of itself is vile and shameful. Nevertheless, let's hear from the death cult leaders themselves. This is from the CPC article, and I'm never going to call them the CBC again. So when I say CPC, you know who I'm talking about. You're not talking about, about the Canadian... Uh, uh, <laughs> Wait, wait, the, the C- Communist Party of China, China yeah, the, yeah. the, the CCP, although yeah. I want people to understand that there are some deep connections there. So mm-hmm. that's not without intention Or the Conservative also. Party of Canada, the year also Yeah, it's all the same. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's, I'm not talking about them, but really they're also in on the they're also in on the on on the con. They so, certainly haven't uh, done anything to push back against this right. stuff, that's for sure. They're in on the con as well, the conservatives. Mm-hmm. So anyways, this is from the article. The takeaway point is that there may be some upfront cost associated with offering medical assistance in dying to Canadians. Now, just I want to stop there, cut through the euphemism. There may be some upfront costs in murdering old people and helping them commit suicide. Okay, let's let's just cut through the euphemism. And funding it, it by the state. Right, <laughs> so they continue. But there may also be a reduction in spending elsewhere in the system and therefore offering doctor-assisted murder and suicide, which is what it is. It's not what they call it. They call it medical assistance in dying. Two Canadians will not cost the healthcare system anything extra, said Aaron Trachenberg, an author of the report and a residence in internal medicine at the University of Calgary. No, Aaron the Butcher. It is going to cost us something. Maybe not money, maybe not extra tax dollars, but it's going to cost us something much more valuable than that. This is what the Lord Jesus says. This is from Matthew 26, 16 to 18. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Who cares if you save $138 million in the healthcare, if you murder people and lose your own soul in the process? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, yes, the individual who takes an innocent life in order to save money is in a perilous state of having their soul condemned to hell, which is what this passage is talking about. 
that if you decide to, in order to secure your own well-being and amass for yourself wealth and comfort and privilege, if that's what you pursue at the expense of loving, honoring, and obeying the Lord, then indeed it comes at the cost of your soul. But it's not just that that we're talking about here. We're talking about the soul of our nation, which will be eaten away at because of stuff like this. If we sit back and neither say nor do anything about this murderous injustice, I really do fear what this means for the soul of our country. Again, not in the spiritual sense that the country needs saving from their sins, right? The country is an entity. But the reality is that this to be embraced by people will actually lead to an erosion of not just the soul of our country, but really a detrimental effect on the individual souls of the people who make up our country. Absolutely, Andrew. This is why we have to, and this is why we do speak out against the evils of this, you know, crazy death cult that we have going on in Canada. Now it's coached in fancy language. It's medical professionals writing, you know, boring academic papers, but it's no less evil than if they were just to come out and say, we need to kill people to save money. We need to fight back against this because, like you mentioned, we are fighting for the soul of our nation. And that's something that you make mention, Andrew, that is important for us to understand is economically speaking, uh, there's something called opportunity cost and things don't cost things. It's just the trade-off between what you're spending your time, your, your medium of exchange, whatever you might be doing on, that's the cost of something. So while they kind of want to limit that discussion to um, just prices, right? Dollar signs. You're talking about the trade-off of a great, a far greater cost, and that's the the cost to the soul, the heart, the the identity of a nation. So we must continue to push back against this death cult identity. It will only further plunge our country into ruin, and it will only further damage the value of human life in our nation if we continue to go down this path. So let's get into the actual text of the report from the CMAJ. It says this, medical assistance in dying could reduce annual health care spending across Canada between 34.7 million and 138.8 million dollars, exceeding the 1.5 to 14.8 million dollars in direct costs associated with the implementation of the program. Providing medical assistance in dying in Canada should not result in any excess financial burden to the healthcare system and could result in substantial savings. Additional data on patients who choose medical assistance in dying in Canada should be collected to enable more precise estimates of the impact of medically assisted death on healthcare spending and to enable further economic evaluation. Healthcare costs increase substantially among patients nearing the end of life, accounting for a disproportionate amount of healthcare spending. 
For example, in Manitoba, more than 20% of healthcare costs are attributable to patients within the six months before dying, despite their representing only 1% of the population. Furthermore, as death approaches, healthcare costs increasingly are increased dramatically in the final months. Patients who chose medical assistance in dying may forego this resource intensive period. That was intentionally written to sound, as we've said, benign and rather bland. But if you were paying attention, that is an evil and rather dystopian view of human beings. Their worth and value is reduced to healthcare spending. The burden they, they put financially on our healthcare system. That's atrocious. Human life is something that is beyond valuable by money, right? That is why when we're looking at scripture, why is the death penalty called for for murder, for direct intentionally killing someone with malice aforethought? Because there is no restitution that can be paid in dollar amounts for the incalculable harm that's been done to that life, right? It's life for life, right? There is no dollar sign that you can assess to human beings. And yet, again, kind of like Yves Duclos reduced us to just meat puppets to inject with the vaccine so-called over and over again, like we're recharging a battery. This is again showing that our government from top to bottom has de so devalued human life that essentially the citizens of Canada are reduced to uh, numbers on a spreadsheet, uh, you know, dollar signs that the government can manage, uh, puppets that they can put where they want and and take away where they want. I think it is truly disgusting. But what else would you expect from the same people that advocate for murdering preborn children? because of difficult life circumstances, right? When you devalue human life at the beginning, you will necessarily do it at the end of life. And that's what we're seeing is this radical push by our government at every stage of life to kill the most vulnerable and most defenseless people in our society for because the progressive policies and view of human rights and all these things are totally untenable and totally unbiblical to save resources. And that is ultimately what leads to this culture of death, Andrew, a devaluing, uh, a removal of God from his throne, a rejection of him as creator, which necessarily leads to the dehumanizing of man because we're rejecting the creator God. We will also devalue his image as it appears in human beings. You, I mean, you're totally correct. And this, this is one of the consequences of a Darwinian kind of thinking about life. So th this is the connect point. So part of the story is human beings are merely seen as resources, right? And the resource of human being, you can put it on a scale and on the other side of the scale is money, right? So it could be wood, it could be jewels, it could be gold, it could be whatever. There's humans and then there's money. So you see human beings merely as a resource, merely as material 
that exists in the world that has just happened to have formed into a certain way. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is, like you've just mentioned, that people who are a burden, people who are vulnerable, people who don't quote-unquote contribute to society are expendable. Well, those two things find their origin in a Darwinian thinking about life. Because if all we are is the painful result of a long process of genetic mutation and random chance and we're just basically further evolved bags of goo, then one, we don't have intrinsic value. So when we're expendable, we can be cut off. And two, we're no different than other resources. We just evolve differently from them. And so this, this thinking that denies the image of God in people, that sees them as resources, that sees them as expendable, is, is vile. And it's not just the beginning of life or the end of life. Obviously, we we see that we see it touching down there, but now we see through childhood and adolescence. Yeah, castrate boys. Yeah, remove 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 the breasts from girls. Yeah, uh, chemically sterilize them so they can't have kids anymore. And and we're we're gonna call this now as we have been calling it. If we think that this ends here, that you they will push for doctor assisted murder and suicide for any age group for any reason, right? This is not a kind and just practice, right? Doctor-assisted murder and doctor-assisted suicide are rolled into one action. And that's why we need to shine a light on this. We need to put it on blast. We need to say that human beings are made in the image of God and their lives have dignity and value. And we need to protect and care for human life from conception to natural death. And this is why this matters. And again, people will say, oh, you guys are overreacting. You're, here, here comes your tinfoil crowns again. You're beautiful, though your jewel-encrusted tinfoil crowns might be. Leave them on the shelf. They don't belong in this discussion. If we say that suffering old people can be murdered, then we go from killing old people who are suffering to old people for any reason. Doesn't matter. If they're old, you can kill them. But also, it goes from murdering any person who is suffering. So if you can murder someone who's 80 because they're suffering, then why can't you murder someone who's 30 if they're suffering? And you leave those reasons vague. And so this flattens out the value of human life. And you all you have to do is you just kept you just keep pressing, you keep pressing the end of it. So now it's old people who are suffering. Yeah, but then it's going to be old people for any reason or anyone who's suffering. And what reason? Well, as we've seen, it could be money. Could be because it saves money. Could be because an individual family will say, you know, we have dad living with us. He's older now. And the cost to feed him, to have the personal, you know, care at home worker come and all his medication it's a lot. It's costing us a lot. It's putting a burden on our family. We can't afford to put him in a long-term care facility. I mean, if he lives another five to seven years, this is going to put a real drain on our family and it's going to be difficult and it's affecting our physical health, our emotional health. So maybe for those reasons, we should bring in the doctor to kill dad. That's where this thinking goes. It just, it, it degrades people and it devalues them to, again, resources and money, and if this is accepted by the broader society, and as the line moves, if we continue to accept this as a country, this will only speed up our collapse 
and our degradation. So that's why we have to draw a line like right here and say that taking innocent life is wrong and it is sinful and you cannot justify it for money, for pain, for suffering, because the moment you cross that line, you fling the door wide open to all sorts of murder and suicide mm -hmm. for whatever vague reason someone comes up with, which is and that's, and, is devastating and for listen, a country. That's not a power that's given to men. Men cannot and should never be able to decide which humans constitute persons and which don't and which humans deserve to live and deserve to die. That is the purview of God and God alone. So when man takes that godlike power, as we've seen throughout all of human history, it ends poorly. And that is the trajectory that we're on. I also just want to make mention before we get into this really wonderful interview, which I know you guys will be blessed by, a lot of people who were pushing back against state-funded healthcare warned that this was a trajectory that this was a possibility that it was going to be, become such a bloated incompetent and poorly run system that cost so much money that eventually the government was going to get to the point where they're going to devalue human life to this extent where they're deciding who's going to live, who's going to die for the sake of cost-saving measures in healthcare. That's where we've gotten. So you have a terribly, poorly run socialistic healthcare system that's no good, very bad. And then you have the utter devaluing of human life by those that same state. And you have in this a toxic brew that is, is again a result of this culture of death, this rejection of God throughout our society, top to bottom. And that's why we have to fight back and sing a different tune in into this culture. And that's why we're so glad that we were able to have a discussion with Dr. Scott Masson. So we talked about the fact that we need to be well-educated so we can properly steward God's creation, that we can live and flourish in the way that God would have us to live, that we can build God honoring cultures and God honoring societies that we can live as we are to do in accord of the word of God, which leads to human flourishing and which is in total opposition to this culture of death of abortion of state funded propaganda and and brainwashing and also ultimately this transhumanistic belief by our governments and the elites in our society that sees human beings as nothing more than bags of meat um so let us get into that discussion with dr scott masson i know you'll be blessed by it <laughs> Well, we are welcomed on the dispatch. It is our joy, uh, and it definitely is our pleasure to have Dr. Scott Masson with us. Uh, Dr. Scott Masson is a professor of English literature at Tyndale University, specializing in literary theory. In fact, he's one of my former professors many, many years ago when we were all much, much younger men. 
with either more hair or more hair that Ouch. was not so gray. Uh, he's a former pastor in Toronto, and he's one of the founders of Westminster Classical Christian Academy, and that's going to be especially important for our discussion with him today. He's a board member of the Ontario Party, and our audience is well familiar with the Ontario Party and our support of them here at Liberty Coalition Canada. He's a regular speaker in the Culture Wars on TV, radio, and newspaper, contributing to the National Post, the Hamilton Spectator, the Toronto Star, and now with the Epoch Times. Dr. Masson, thanks so much for joining us on the Liberty Dispatch. It was especially nice to see you in person uh, just a few days ago. So, yeah, thanks so much for being with us today. My great pleasure, Andrew. Great to see you again. So... You were one of the few and one of the first people around March 2020 to take out and polish your tinfoil hat and, and wear it unashamedly. So since then, I can say that your tinfoil hat has now become a jewel-embedded crown, and you should wear it proudly, and you should showcase it for all to see. And so what were you seeing, and how were you able to see the tyranny and the overreach so quickly and be able to call you know, this is going to lead to this mandate, to this injection thing. How, what, okay, what were you drawing from that you saw this much more clearly than a large number of professing Christian, even reform-leaning ones, they just didn't see it? Yeah, that's a, that's a really difficult question um, insofar as I think there are so many different factors that played into it that um, it would be hard to list them all. But I, let me just say a few things, but there, it really is a tendency, I've thought, culturally, uh, towards growing totalitarianism in, and, uh, in, in culture in general. And I had been teaching, and I don't, Andrew, I don't think I taught this when you were at Tyndale, but a course on uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien on their view of technology. So Lewis writes a sci-fi trilogy and Tolkien, as everyone knows, The Lord of the Rings. And in both of those uh, novels or works, there's a lot of focus on technology and scientism. And, uh, and I'd read a book by, um, uh, just draw a blank, called Technopoly uh, by Neil Postman uh, for that course and so forth. And I could see that this is the, the growing belief in technology and the seeking to, to sort of uh, control reality or understand it through technology and make it amenable to technology uh, was happening and it had been happening for decades. Uh, globalism, uh, the, the growth of, uh, of uh, urbanization increasing around the world, the fact that people went to universities like mine, my alma mater, the University of Durham, uh, from all over the world. I mean, I'm a Canadian. I went to the University of Durham in Northeast England. Um, but I was alongside Germans and French and Spanish and, you know, people from all over the world. You will find that there are a certain number of universities around the world where the elite train and they end up having more in common with people outside of their own country than they do with people in their country. So there's more of, there's a globalism that's happening everywhere. And at the same time, uh, the radical left, it seems to me, is increasingly moving towards a very, uh, post-humanist view of, of life. You can see that in the environmental movement. It's a big part of what we're seeing in the UN's Agenda 2030. And I could see that this agenda, and, and this itself is a t t supposedly a tinfoil foil hat theory that the UN has this Agenda 21, but it, it's there. It's there in print. 
I don't call things that are verifiable by a click on the internet and reading the documents a conspiracy theory. I simply call them unreported news. And, and so, well, the reason you do that is because you're not a contributor for TGC. That's why. If you were, you would say that. Ouch. But because you're not, you don't say that. Okay. <laughs> well, I, right. Um, well, I don't know if that's the reason why I'm not a contributor for TGC. But but there it, it right. Yeah, but we could note that there is a certainly a lack of uh, comment in that direction on TGC. I would certainly say that. But. Uh, but related specifically to this particular instance, well, there were news of uh, of these outbreaks of COVID in China uh, as far back as October even. Um, and I, I have friends in the Chinese Christian community and they had been talking to me about this. And I had been on social media making noises even before uh, this in January and so forth about the fact that Trudeau should be closing the borders. If this really is as advertised a... Uh, you know, potential pandemic, then you need to stop flights in from that particular area. Now, the particular area is Wuhan, China. Uh, I was told that within China itself, there were no, there was no travel allowed out from Wuhan. They had basically shut off the province. And so if the Chinese were doing this, then we ought to be doing it. And we didn't do that. So it seemed to me that, and at the same time, people who were talking about, um, you know, this threat from China were being accused of, you know, xenophobia or, you know, the, the hatred of the Chinese and so forth. And it was in the middle of a U.S. election campaign. As I say, there are so many multiple factors here. Um, but when they came in and they kept flying in from China, they, they never stopped. Uh, it became apparent that it had now arrived on Toronto shores uh, or rather Canadian uh, shores. And um, so initially, when they declared they were going to lock down for 15 days, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve, um, I was skeptical, but okay, let, let's see with this. But I was also suspecting that it was not going to last 15 days and that measures like this once brought in place are very difficult to uh, push back. And there's already a desire amongst our uh, ruling elites to gain more control over the lives of individuals and particularly with climate change in mind. We want to stop flights, we want to stop uh, the expansion of the economy, we want to stop carbon pollution, etc, etc. This is a perfect justification for that. So all those things led me, led me in that direction. And the final thing that I remember uh, now, a few years on, is early on they were reporting in, in uh, Toronto at any rate that we didn't have any need to worry because We'd been through all this before in SARS. So Canada, we were told, was particularly well prepared for a pandemic because of our measures in place. And I thought, okay, I, I actually interviewed at Tyndale the year that SARS hit in, 19, uh, in uh, 2003. And, uh, so, and I know people who are affected by it in, in that community, actually. But... Um, what I noted is that they didn't follow the plan that they had in place. And this was the big tip off. If you at the bureaucratic level have a plan for an emergency, uh, which is there so that you don't have to make rush panic decisions and you ignore that plan and do something completely different, something unprecedented, that is you quarantine the healthy, um, then you're doing something that is clearly ideological. It's, not ba it's neither based on science nor your own policies. So there's another agenda at foot. So I then became a harsh critic very quickly, as you say. Um, and I, 
again, people were scared into compliance, but that's just a tool of totalitarian governments everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's and if I could boil that all down, it seems to me that the thread woven through that is you have an onslaught of of information and misinformation that's coming from various sources, but you yourself are also trying to make sense of all of these other factors, right? It's not one thing, it's a number of things. And you're trying to synthesize all of this and, 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 and distill it down to what's going on here, which takes a, a measure of rigor and discipline, right? Like that's not something that it would be easier to just say, okay, shut it down. And then people you can see that we're overwhelmed by the, the bombarding of information and fear and they just, they shut down, I'll comply. But the, the discipline of being able to take a step back, try to assess, look at different sources, read through what's going on, that, that discipline of critical thinking is what enabled you yes. to land where you did, yeah. um, which says something I think is, is, is rather, it, it's quite the indictment then against people, even those we would say are intelligent, godly men, were they not exercising, were they not employing the same type of critical thinking Probably not. Mm-hmm. Probably. They probably shut their brains off uh, and just kind of went with whatever was presented to them. I don't know if they shut them off. Um, they they deferred to expertise is what they did. And they said that, you know, I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian leader. I have a certain area of expertise and this is not mine. And so I'm going to defer to the experts. It seems to me a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to do in, in certain respects. But my experience in... in in academia and in life is that the people who have expertise are nowhere near as expert as they are being claimed to be in these particular areas. They have a very limited area of, of supreme knowledge and they are very much experts in that area. But this particular uh, call, that is we're going to shut down everything, isn't just a in relation to microbiology or virology. It's in relation to economics and uh, family policy in relation to politics, it's in relation to government, it's in relation to the, the, the psychological effects. I mean, there's a myriad of concerns here. And so normally, we leave individuals to make decisions on behalf of themselves and their families, which is what I said very early on ought to happen. We can invoke sphere sovereignty, or we can invoke um, uh, Catholic understandings of this as well, that we ought to leave the decision to the lowest um competent authority, in this case, the individual. I can look after my own health. And so if I'm, if I'm at risk, if I'm old, I'm elderly, I, because that, from the very beginning, the virus profile is hitting the elderly, then I should take those measures. But if I am young and healthy, and, and again, right from the outset, apparently not at high risk from this, then I'm not going to lock myself down and I'm going to carry on. And that's what happened in previous pandemics. I did a little research into it, just like anyone can. Spanish flu, you know, it's hit. It's we've had these problems before, culturally. So this was an entirely unprecedented decision. It would not have happened if we didn't have the technology there to allow people to work from home. And you then can talk about another aspect of the conspiracy then, which is that, you know, the big tech people made enormous amounts of money from it. And so they had a, a vested interest in this measure being taken, and they just happened to be connected with the same globalist elite. So you start connecting dots and it makes sense. And they're inflating the statistics and all that. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think Andrew makes a good point when he talks about the rigor that you had to put into the analysis of the situation. So you could read the tea leaves, so you could understand what was going on in culture. It just really boils down to the fact that democratic self-governance is hard work. This is something that our forefathers Mm -hmm. who were creating the Western world understood especially reformed forefathers especially those in the american founding they understood that to create democratic self-governance in a stable society took an informed electorate took an informed citizenry and i can't help but think that we have in so many ways become lazy in our thinking and we're rather uneducated as um, and broadly educated as uh, individuals within Canada. And that kind of brings us into what you've spent so much of your life doing, uh, Dr. Masson, and that is education. Um, so mm-hmm. you have specifically founded Westminster Classical Christian Academy. And I want to <laughs> talk a little bit. This is something I just had my first child, a wonderful little daughter. I've been looking a lot into and preparing my mind as a father for what route are we going to go in education. And I've been doing a lot of research on classical Christian academics. So maybe you could explain for our listeners the importance of classical Christian schooling and why this is really an answer to a lot of the comfort and malaise and folly that we find ourselves in in the current moment? Well, the current public school system uh, was rooted in a classical model. It, that, that, because that was the governing model of education that had reigned from the ancient world, really, uh, up until the 19th century. Uh, it was a certain pedagogy, a certain approach to education. Um, in uh, Ephesians 6, 4, the Apostle Paul speaks about the paideia of God that you're to bring to your children. In uh, Deuteronomy, in the Shema, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. Jesus quotes that as the greatest commandment. What's the context? Well, it's the context of teaching children. Um, and, and discipleship in the Great Commission you know, teaching the nations, discipling the nations, all these are connected to teaching. Education is central to the gospel. And what I noted in my study of education over the past 30-odd years is that education has divorced the secular from the sacred, and it's banished theology from the academy. And even in the Bible school movement, or you could say in the seminary movement, we've largely... uh, continued that divorce um, and and pastoral education takes place to teach you how to teach the Bible, which is fine and good and worthy of doing and, and needs to be done more and we need more preaching from scripture. But scripture also is a, is a, a document embedded in culture and it requires the knowledge of culture around us in order to uh, apply it and understand it properly as well. And so my point here is that classical education is just a return to education as it used to be before public education uh, adopted a different sort of methodology and an, even a different goal 
of education, the education of progressivism, whether you want to talk about John Dewey or someone else, is to train people for the future and future knowledge. It's not acquainting them with the things as they already are, as God has ordained them to be, but rather how we want them to be. So it, I, I regard uh, Dewey's progressivism as basically ideology. It's no longer education. But when you have an inherited tradition of education uh, that's been there for thousands of years, and, and Christians have adapted and and transformed that classical pedagogy, by the way, in accordance with, with Christian truth, but still the pedagogy is basically there. Um, when, you, when you do that, it takes time for that older pedagogy and that older approach to understanding education to uh, leave those who are teaching. And so with each successive generation of teachers, as they've moved further and further away from the classical approach, which is basically articulated well by John Milton, a great hero of mine, but this is the, why, the reason why I was on to education very on. He said that the end of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright and out of that knowledge to love him and to imitate him and to be like him. Okay, so what is that doing? Well, it's restoring the ruins. That's the goal of education. It's not educating for the future. It's recovering what is lost. So it has a very different view of Adam than... Who was Adam? Well, he was not some naked savage, you know, barely able to articulate himself, dragging Eve around by the hair. I don't even know how people know that uh, a caveman ever did that anyway, but Adam is no caveman. He is, and this is presented by Milton in the whole Renaissance, as a great scientist. This is a man who knew things in their uh, essence, and he named them. Note that God gives uh, Adam the prerogative to name things. Well, when he names them, he's not just giving a random name, he's asserting a knowledge of the essence of the thing. That's what he's doing when he names, if you look at naming in scripture. Classical education is doing that in all areas of life. So that Shema that I quoted from Deuteronomy uh, goes on to talk about different spheres uh, of life. So it begins by talking, or your listeners want to go this, he said, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Well, this is at all times. Then it goes on, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, so it reflects your deeds, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, so your, your thoughts. And then finally, you shall write them on the doorposts of your gate, uh, house and on your gates. Well, what does this mean? It means it, it governs the civic realm, the public square, the public sphere, the, and, and the gates of the city are where the elders sit and, and judge and rule the city. So it's the private sphere, it's the public sphere. It's not just for the home. It's not just your private beliefs. It's something that is also articulated publicly. It's going to be seen publicly. This is also an apologetic, by, by the way, for Christians in politics as well. It's not just an apologetic as in this is uh, what we should do, but it's a necessity that it should be done. Remember, uh, God uses his scriptures, old and new, but the old as a sort of a teacher for uh, a pedagogue. God doesn't just send Jesus into the world. He takes the example of Israel throughout the Old Testament and all of the scriptures there to teach us something about the nature of teaching. And that is that it's not just uh, new, new knowledge, it's renewed knowledge. And to renew something, you have to know what's there before. 
So it's not just learning uh, the, you know, the STEM subjects, it's getting down to the origins of thought and tracing them out. And this is a long and difficult path. And I think um, the problem with the Bible school movement and even the seminary movement is it accepted the great divorce of theology from knowledge in general. And, and so the, those that go into the pastoral ministry, um, and no, nobody is as equipped as they want to be, and eventually you just have to get it done. Um, but you ought to think that what happens in the humanities is important, and what happens in the sciences is important, and you ought to try and stay on top of that and think about it. But then you need examples to do this. And I came to Tyndale, and all the talk was of this book that had been published uh, called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Mark Knoll. You've heard of it. Uh, uh, the uh, Christianity Today, 10 years on, said it was, uh, it had, quote, arguably shaped the evangelical world, or at least its institution, more than any other book published in the last decade. Well, I see no indication of that. That sounds, <laughs> to me, that sounds like, oh, yes, he said that there's a scandal of the evangelical mind, and we've really been transformed by that. Well, I don't see the transformation. I, I, I don't see it. And the main place I don't see it is I don't see Christians saying uh, education is a mandate in Scripture. It's not something that we ought to consider. It's something that we have to do. We have to do. Parents are charged with this. Yeah, that's that's the whole that's the whole weight behind mm -hmm. Deuteronomy six. Like that's that's the reason why my wife and I, who before we had kids. We're thinking, do we do public school? Do we do private school, Christian school? And we were, we were kind of balked at homeschooling a little bit, in part because we grew up in Toronto and our entire culture around us had a certain idea, had a certain caricature of the homeschool sure. kid. But the more we started understanding the scriptures, especially Deuteronomy 6, the onus for education is the parents. It's their responsibility to educate their children Absolutely. as they as they sit, as they wake up, as they rise, as you're on the way. And so that... That and I mean, at, the, the idea of understanding from where we've come, and 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 knowing that, knowing, you know, looking at the ruins and the rebuilding and the reestablishing them for the future. About a year and a half ago, I finally stumbled on Francis Schaeffer. I, mean, I didn't grow up in a Reformed tradition, right. and I, I, I didn't have access to that. And I stumbled upon Schaeffer right in the midst of the pandemic. And it was a book that he wrote in 1984, which is the year that I was born. And Schaefer's looking at events from the 20s to the 60s, and he's drawing conclusions in the 80s saying, this is why we are where we are, and if we don't check it, it's going to look more and more like yep. this. And I know that he was he was criticized, that he's being an alarmist, and he's being a whatever, all, all the same things that are leveled against many people. But this understanding of looking back and understanding what, what are the foundations, what are the presuppositions? Otherwise, we're just, I mean, that's why we're in the mess that we're in. <laughs> it is. It's because that has not been yeah, absolutely. And and Andrew, these days, if you're in leadership in Christian communities, um, you have to make decisions based on evidence. That's you can't use wisdom anymore. You can't use your understanding. You have to cite statistics and so forth. So it's rather helpful to note that we now have statistics that chart exactly the uh, the abrogation of duty that we're talking about here. Um, hemorrhaging Faith, an uh, EFC document in 2011 or 12, said that something, uh, something along the lines of 70%, and I think this is probably uh, optimistic, of kids that grew up in evangelical homes stop 
going to church and are never coming back by the time they leave for university. So that says to me something about the effect of public education. Now, those of us in the Reformed tradition will talk about the sovereignty of God. And, and so again, in the TGC, for example, they are in the Reformed tradition, broadly speaking, I think, they will talk about, and, and they don't talk about the necessity of Christian education because they, again, they say salvation, we're here about the gospel, we're here about salvation, we're here to promote the gospel, and gospel is a gift of God, and therefore you can't do anything for that gift, otherwise it would be a matter of works, right? But, but look at the consequences here. When God promises that he, be, he will be with us always, is it really um, God that's letting us down or mysteriously abandoning our children, or are we doing so by not obeying the Christian mandate? I say the latter, and I say it's plainly so. It's plainly so, and it's become more... Now, to be fair to the people who talk about this, if they're older, they're in their 60s, 70s, 80s, the public school system has changed significantly in the last few decades. But now it has become so... I mean, there is no case to be made anymore. It is the case that you ought to be uh, educating your children as Christians. Now, you can, a lot of people are homeschooling because there are no options. For me, the synagogue was the model for Christian education. They were educated corporately, and that and and there's a, there's there's good to that, and there's a need for that. But that might go down too deep into the weeds. But I I think that uh, a corporate model there is more helpful, and that's certainly the one that Milton did. Yeah, and I I think we need to touch on some of the stuff that you guys have talked about in your back and forth. There is that yeah, okay. education is necessarily built upon faith commitments on basic axiomatic presuppositions. And you talked, uh, Dr. Masson, about how this new progressive education launched by Dewey had a view of anthropology, of who man is, and, and how to educate them based off of who they are that is absolutely totally and utterly antithetical to biblical Christianity and the presuppositions of scripture. So in light of that fact, you know, progressivism views man as this malleable piece of meat that can be shaped and directed by the environment that you put them in. But Christianity says that there's a human nature that is yes. embedded into the person. Um, so how do you how do you deal with uh, these two presuppositions in education and why is understanding that there's two basic and fundamental religious presuppositions to to education that are competing here why is this so important for Christians in understanding the fact that we have to pick up this torch. We have to take this mandate that God's given us and run with it. And not like Andrew and, and so many other Christians think of the public schools as maybe a good option, which I'm glad he, he, he didn't go with after much study or even naively a mission field that their kids can go into. And then oh, the salt and light. Yes. The salt and light argument. So why does understanding that these two different views of education are two basically religious oppositions why is that important for christians to actually then pick up the torch that we need to do 
Well, the, the view that Dewey holds and of progressivism in general and modernity, furthermore, uh, of human nature, it's largely the Cartesian one. So there's a, we, we have a uh, thinking thing inside of us, the cogito, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And then we have a body, but the body is, you know, it's been described as a, a machine. You know, there's a ghost in a machine. The ghost is my thinking thing, and then there's my body. That that view of human nature posits that the the real essence of me is a spiritual essence, which sounds Christian, sounds like it is, but it isn't, because Christianity will talk about an embodied nature. You know, God Himself took on a human body in the incarnation. This is so such is important to Christology as well as education here, and He also. Uh, learned as a Christian. I, one of the questions I think ought to be asked is what, uh, what, how did Jesus get taught? Did Jesus have ultimate full knowledge as a human being when he was born incarnate? I don't think he did, actually, because then he wouldn't be a man as a baby. And he didn't go out into the mission field as a child either to be salt and light for that matter. He, he, he began his public mi uh, mission when he was 30 years of age, 30 years of age. And he f had uh, learned a trade by that time before he went out of the mission field for that year. And he discipled his, his own disciples for three years, for that matter, before he did what he came to do, which was to go to the cross. And he was, he was raised bodily at that point, uh, and they could see him. He walked with them before the ascension, right? There was a, this important time between resurrection and ascension, 40 days, in which he explained to them what had happened and so forth. And they, he was vis physically in front of him. They st could stick their fingers in his sides if they wanted to. Um, so there's something about incarnate human nature being said there that's important in education as well. Modernity l leans in the direction of Gnosticism, a Gnostic and this is an old heresy, a view of human nature that is essentially spiritual, but denies or even sees the body as an impediment to true education. Progressivism leans in that direction again. And in Germany, this is now in my area of expertise, it prompts uh, the development of something called the Geisteswissenschaft, and terrible long word. But it's the spiritual sciences, it's, it's the, the replacement of the humanities. And, um, and it's different than the humanities. It's a different trajectory. It, it emphasizes spiritual things, but it de-emphasizes embodiedness. Now, so this, as I say, is a long time playing itself out. But now we're at the point where uh, I think there is finally a need for Christians to simply say that the public system, which they started... Uh, now they need to abandon and start and renew what the Christians, as their forebears, had always known, which is that education is something the church needs to take ownership of. And when I say the church, the people who are in the churches, not individual churches, but Christians together need to be involved in education. And you can see that historically through various movements. It's there back as far as, as Charlemagne. You can see it again in the... Uh, the Reformation, and, and before it, there's a, a commitment to education. Luther under Melanchthon uh, starts the current German school system, which becomes world famous, etc. Calvin's Geneva, it's all over the place. We're just going back to the way things always were uh, in a different Would age. you say the same about seminaries? So let, let's talk about the general public school system. Would you say, I mean, no one's going to hold you to this, but when I think about the, the, the current state of 
Bible colleges, Christian liberal arts universities and seminaries, there, there's a part of me that says in a similar fashion, we need to just let them decay and we need to build new ones or we need to start over again, that perhaps they might be irredeemable maybe not are we there yet is it is that quick approaching where we need to essentially rebuild christian higher education as well and we need to rebuild seminaries and universities or have we not crossed that line yet well that's a difficult question andrew and here's why it's difficult if you were going to restart uh, from scratch and build new institutions who's going to do the building who are the educated people who are, have the education needed and the wisdom and the experience uh, to be able to do what you have tasked as a, as a good thing to do as an alternative to the current corrupt system. That's your problem right there. Who are these people? There are very few people around who have the knowledge. And, and you pointed it out at the outset of our talk in relation to COVID. How come more people didn't see what was obvious to me? And I think it's because they, they had not been looking and, and even when they looked, they said, that's not my responsibility or I'm going to defer to the experts. Um, or they even said, well, we are, you know, there to obey those in authority over us because it's a political decision, which anyone who's a, in the reform tradition knows has was used on both sides. Uh, yes, they're in authority over us, but they're not in authority over us in our private lives. Right? There's a limit to that, and there's also a justification for throwing off tyranny when they overreach their boundaries there. So there's a, there's a rich uh, debate even within the Reformed tradition on what Romans uh, 13 will say on, this, on these topics. But that's the problem. So I would say that you try and reform the institutions that are already there. So, you know, Jesus says, I'm, behold, I'm making all things new. He's not saying I need to make all new things. You don't necessarily have to make every institution from ground zero. Um, I think that's a fallacy. But I do think that if the current institutions around you are irredeemable because there's just no way you can work with it, then you start from, from scratch and do the best you can. But if there are institutions that are there, it takes time to build institutions, then you do your best in that. Ultimately, there comes a, a point at which you can no longer redeem the institutions. But I'm at an institution at Tyndale, which has its problems, like every Christian institution does now. Um, I think I was called there, and I think it's my call to seek to redeem it uh, in, in being in there. Um, and I don't know where the resources would come to do otherwise at the moment, but there will come a time, perhaps, if they continue to decline, that uh, a new institution will be called for. Well, that will require enormous time, effort, finance, and the wisdom to pick the people who are going to lead it. <laughs> That's the problem. This is a big problem. But you know what? God is looking for those with whom he can do the impossible. That's, that's the story that I understand in Scripture and uh, looking at historically. Uh, we think about what we can do, but that's not how God has worked historically. He's looked at people who have trusted in him and said, we're going to do things that can't be done because we're not going to do them. But God will use us in this and bring resources together. So it, it, there's, a, there's a hope because God is with us. But I, I, I'm being realistic in, in describing the lay of the land uh, and the problem of the educated is they're not educated. That's a, that is not a small problem. When, 
Well, it's interesting that you bring up just the, the little bit there about trusting the Lord that he's the one that does the work. Um, this isn't necessarily tied to the questions, but in, in preparing for this interview, I, I thought of something that I, I've actually remembered for, so we're in 2022, so that I've remembered for about 15 years, 16 years, actually from one of your classes, yes. it was a John Milton poem, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent. Um, and I remember that poem standing out to me very much so in class and it's it's stuck with me like it is it is it's it's been imprinted on my mind for you know almost two decades now i've used it in sermon illustrations i've shared it with people even his story that he started his life with sight and then as an artist as a poet right he's able to observe the natural world and he draws from that when he writes his poetry and then toward the end of his life he loses his sight and then he writes this poem and in the poem he labors the fact if if i'm a if i'm an artist if i'm a poet my job is to see and then record see and then and 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 observe and then write something to describe it what am i supposed to do mm. now what is my role if i'm if i'm if i'm a poet if i'm an artist that can't see and then you have the the, the gracious but still strong uh, challenge from the Lord at the end of the poem, which is, you don't understand, I have angels at my disposal ready to do whatever I want them to. Yours is to seek after me and to trust me. Uh, and that that being a, a helpful Christian perspective when we, when we survey the world, that yes, we have work to do, uh, but ultimately, even when the work seems insurmountable, even when we see our own hindrances to the work, we have to remember that, well, the Lord is always at work. His purposes will always prevail. Uh, and we're, we have responsibility, but he is still sovereignly directing all things. I think that's a helpful word as we survey the, the cultural landscape. And really, as I ask this, this question, uh, what is the next battlefront in the cultural war? So <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to put a time frame on it. You can do that, whether it's you know six months, one year, five years, ten years. But we have just come out of or we're i guess i i think we're in the process of slowly transitioning out of a rather pivotal watershed moment in the history of our country yep. that things have changed will never go Probably back not. things have been revealed that will affect the way we perceive the state and the church forever yep. so we, we we've we've kind of turned around this corner with a new realization with these new revelations of what's going on what's the next cultural war coming for Christians, coming for churches, and how is it that we, again, resting on the fact that God is sovereign, that God will direct all things according to his good pleasure and his eternal decree, but what is it, how do we need to be ready, what do we need to be prepared for, and how do we need to gather ourselves for whatever's You're next? You're asking me to be a prophet now. That's correct. I'm asking us to step out of the reform tradition <laughs> no, and to be prophets for up. a moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've been saying this for a while. Um, and uh, seminaries are always, and I've heard this repeated by Christian leaders now. So um, by the point that Christian leaders are saying it up front, it's uh, well-worn. But, you know, the church is 10 to 20 uh, years behind the culture. Um, I think it's that's a, that's probably a very benign reading of it um, because I don't think it's it's 20 years behind it. I think it's at least 50 years behind it. There's been no recognition of what 
the the enormity of what has transformed culturally here, and so Christians are now talking about deconstruction. My my uh, doctoral supervisor was Britain's foremost deconstructionist. I know a bit about deconstruction. I don't get asked to talk about it <laughs> in Canada, of course, um, or any of the matters like cultural Marxism or you, I mean, you name it. The things that I actually know something about, as opposed to people what p other people talk about. And like Jordan Peterson, he talks about things he doesn't know what he's talking about in some areas. But he's a bright man and he arti he's articulate, so he can speak to it. But um, the next thing is upon us right now. It's posthumanism and transhumanism. Those are upon us. The uh, the gender identity, the queer theory. Um, I started teaching that in my lit theory class 10 years ago when I could no longer avoid it because it was there. And, uh, and now it looks prophetic because if you think you're, you're saying things about gender identity, about the sex ed and whatever. Um, I think you're overstating the case, the problem with this. Uh, well, now everybody's saying, where did this come from? How come nobody said anything? Well, there were people who said things, but there weren't many, to be fair. And also, they're saying nobody, their leaders were not saying anything about this. Why were our leaders not saying it? In other words, our pastors. Go back to the answer we had before, because the pastors didn't think that they were there to comment about education or politics or sexual identities. They weren't equipped to do so either, to be fair to them. That was not part of their seminary training. It, you would not have studied that in seminary and probably still won't study it in seminary because that's in a different discipline and we're focused on theology here. Again, note the bifurcation of, of areas of knowledge, even though, of course, our human nature is an essential part of Christology and, and, and our own discipleship, of course. Post-humanism is the idea that humanity is of no greater moment or importance than a computer or an animal or the earth. And so the environmental movement is promoting a form of post-humanism. Now, if we're of no more importance than that, it sounds like uh, a positive view of nature. We're, we're promoting, elevating the environment to greater importance. We're sullying the earth. What it really is, and this I'm following C.S. Lewis on this, is we're actually demeaning human nature. We're saying it, that it is of no importance whatsoever, and we ought to reduce our carbon footprints and what this is effectively is a return to a Malthusian view of life, and we ought to reduce the number of humans. So this is a this is a an apologetic for killing, which we see in the euthanasia, uh, growing euthanasia movement all around us. And I've been talking about this for quite a long time, and I can't get people to listen to me on it. Likewise, transhumanism, augmenting it through artificial intelligence and so forth. Can anyone deny that that's happening now? I mean, it's all around us. Where are the Christians speaking about it? I was speaking about it for, for decades. Why? Because I'm in the humanities. But theologians, that that's not important. Let's hear about theology. <laughs> with 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 notable exceptions. Uh, oh, of course I, rem I, I remember uh, listening to R.J. Rushduni and him talk extensively about transhumanism. And okay. I remember thinking, man, this is the wackiest lecture that I've heard from a theologian. But boy, was it prophetic as we are being transitioned into this fourth 
industrial revolution, which is alchemic in nature. It's yep. uh, and it's going to be uh, based on algorithms, right? It's a hyper real. Yeah, yeah, the whole COVID thing was based on algorithms. Exactly. Uh, fake modeling, garbage in, garbage out modeling, which is the same modeling that you get for climate change. It's not yep. real science. It's garbage. But this is the way that we are being trans into this uh, transitioned into this algorithm. Uh, no, no pun yeah, intended. Well, transitioned, transitioned into no pun into intended. an algorithmic future in, in this fourth yep. industrial re mm -hmm. revolution, which has been dreamed up by globalists like uh, people at the UN, the WEF, all these institutions we've talked about. So and the digital ID that we're about to be forced Foist, into using. Yeah, yeah. It, Dr. Masson, we might need to have you back on the program just to talk specifically about posthumanism and transhumanism because that's a huge subject. Um, but we really are very thankful that you came on to talk about um, not only is your stance for freedom uh, against government tyranny as it pertains to what's gone on for the last two and a half years and the COVID restrictions, but also the necessity for Christians to be educated in a biblical world and life view that is fa fa founded on the, the basic biblical presuppositions, because that is necessary for building um, and, and fighting in the future as Christians are, are called to do um, for for the cross of Christ. So we're so thankful that you joined us. We really appreciate your wisdom, and we will definitely have to have you back on to have some very interesting conversations. Yeah, this, this this went this went from a segment to the entire episode, which I'm fine with. <laughs> I'm totally fine with. This is now going to be a standalone episode, yeah. and I think it'll be good. I think it'll be helpful. And I mean, just really quickly, the we've talked about this before what we've recognized is that what we're up against is a culture of death that doesn't give life it robs life it distorts life it corrupts life and the only answer to that is the gospel is the fact that life is found in christ that restoration that wholeness is found only in christ that the church's job is to yes proclaim the gospel but not just do that but to bring all things under christ's lordship for the goodness yeah. Of life, no, no, like the reality is making sure that babies don't get murdered at the mill isn't something that's in the gospel. Like no. it's not something in the gospel statement, no. but it is a, a clear outworking of the gospel, and it is a Christian responsibility to fight for the oppressed and the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, and to actually do what is good. As Jeremiah says, you're going in exile, and so do what's right. Right, build your cities, be a blessing to the city, be about the prosperity of the city. And because we are fighting against this death cult, it is the death cult, but the death cult, the government's the not the, the death image cult, of God. Right? It's the principalities and powers behind it. Right, it, it that's is right. The spiritual powers. It's the ideologies yeah. behind it. It's this this behemoth, this cultural behemoth that's behind yeah. it. Is we need to say no, 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 no. That's that is from Satan. He's the, he's a murderer from Correct. the beginning. Um, that's not of God. So. Again, thanks so much for, for joining us. This has been, and I trust will be very, very fruitful and beneficial for our audience. No, thank you, gentlemen. Well, we really hope that you enjoyed that discussion, and we hope that you really do value our programming here because it really is going to take 
concerned citizens like you, our dear listeners, pushing back against this culture of death by promoting a culture of life for Canada to truly flourish. We believe that all human beings deserve human rights and that human rights begin when that human being begins and it lasts until natural death and that freedom is predicated on that basic human right to life and if we really want to have a freedom movement in Canada we must honor and uphold that basic right and if we want to have limited government we cannot give them the godlike power of determining which human beings constitute as persons and which human beings should live and die that is fundamental to creating a free society that we limit government in that area and that we promote health and peace and human God-ordained rights on the other. And that's why we exist as a program to, to teach, to educate, to uphold these two things. And we really hope you were blessed by the conversation. Please continue to to get all our episodes. You're definitely going to want to tune in to Open Mic later this week on Saturday as he talks to uh, Denis Rancor about the crazy climate cult and, and COVID hysteria. You're going to be blessed by that conversation. And thank you again for tuning in to the Liberty Dispatch. We are so blessed to have you. And until next time, Galatians 5-1. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel as well as visit our website at www.LibertyCoalitionCanada.com.